with INTLFC Stone, and I'm happy to be back with you again today. Certainly plenty to talk about. Let me get this uh, disclaimer slide up here uh, while we go into the opening so we can have it up long enough for you to have a chance to read. Uh, but uh, as, as we go into today's crop report, uh, we cannot do so without also talking about the events of the previous 24 hours, that being the presidential election. So we're going to talk about some of the implications of that. I made the comment on Tuesday, uh, prior to us knowing the results of the election, that the election itself might have a bigger impact on the grain and oilseed prices uh, today than actually the USDA report. That proved not to be the case, and I'll talk about why as we go forward, how it could have been, and how it actually ended up helping us, believe it or not, even with the big losses that we did see today. Uh, but let's go ahead and start talking about, first of all, uh, remembering that prices function of supply and demand as modified by the flow of money. So once again, we will talk about the flow of money, what was impacting that, and the election was a big part of it. Here we have the weekly dollar chart, which I've shown you going back to the second quarter of 2009. You see how we've largely been in a sideways trading range, a rather broad sideways trading range, since January of 2015, so coming up on two years. And of late, we have broken higher, still within that broader range, but we had been in a descending triangle formation. We broke above that, kind of pulled back here of late, but uh, last night specifically, following the uh, election results, when it became apparent to the markets, and frankly, I felt like the markets called the Trump victory before the experts did. Uh, they had been wrong along with the experts yesterday, but they were the first to really show signs that Trump had a chance of winning last night. And as that happened, we saw stocks around the world start to fall, particularly U.S. stocks with Dow futures, Dow Jones Industrial Average futures, dropping 800 points at one point. But the dollar was down 2,000 points, a huge move for the dollar, uh, but rebounded and was up over 500 points at times today. And so a very wide trading range for the dollar. Stocks traded positive at times today. And we saw generally risk off overnight, but the market reaction was so severe that it overdid things so obviously that buyers came jumping back in as bargain hunters. And uh, so in that bargain hunting, and it's interesting to note that the dollar actually traded down to about the 200-day move, excuse me, the 100-day moving average, which was just above that trend line support and that uh, wedge formation, and where the selling dried up, and that's where the bargain hunters came in to buy. So overall, uh, very much a risk off overnight. But then as we got the day trade at the time the crop report came out, we actually were looking at positive money flow into the broader commodity sector, which actually helped minimize some of the losses, some of the selling that we were seeing as a result of what was really a bearish USDA crop report. Now, we've talked about the connection with the CRB index, which has been showing signs of breaking, at least in the sideways to lower trend. Uh, it's been in a, a triangle formation, a wedge formation as well which typically precedes a more significant move in one direction or the other. And right now, the bias for that is to the downside. 
that creates a little bit of downside pressure for the grain and oilseed prices as well. Um, so, and of course, here's the chart showing the shaded areas being net fund ownership of corn, soybean, Chicago, and Kansas City wheat. The orange line being the CRB index. They correlate very well uh, and are indirectly correlate very well then with the dollar as well. So dollar policy is very important. Uh, I got a call from a, a Politico earlier today asking me uh, about uh, Donald Trump's uh, trade policies and how that might be detrimental to agriculture. And I'll talk about that here in a little bit. Um, but I said probably the bigger issue right now is the dollar. And so the challenge for Donald Trump as president-elect and then president is going to be what can he do to bring our dollar into parity with, with the currencies of our competing countries, countries that also compete with us on the export market. That is the challenge before him if he's going to help us move our surpluses. And, and there's a limit to how much he can do, but there are some things that he can do. Now, as we look at overall the commodities, last month when I showed you this, this is a three-month relative performance of commodities. Most of the ags were down in this lower part, negative territory. We've seen a significant shift over the last month with now corn and soybeans back in positive territory and wheat reducing its losses. So... The ag commodities are improving, and then there's some others that have been doing really well lately as well. I uh, think of coffee, for instance, and, and some others. Um, but we do see some improvement for the ags. Now let's talk about the election some more. I call it Brexit 2.0. I'm not the first to say that. There are others who have said it as well. Uh, I say that because it was, it, this wasn't necessarily about Donald Trump. This was about a populist movement, and he was... Uh, someone who recognized it was willing to jump on the bandwagon and be an available tool for the populist movement that we saw in Great Britain. Uh, all the experts are wrong. It was really uh, about the establishment, uh, vote against the establishment, and uh, that was a large part of what this was. The initial reaction was abrupt, as I said, and I would even call it violent, although I mean that in way of market reaction highly volatile, and then it was over. Now, I still think that we're going to be vulnerable to some volatility in the days ahead. There's going to be a nervousness there. So Trump's first responsibility and role will be to provide some certainty to the market. He campaigned as an agent of change and shaking up the establishment. Well, what does that mean? Uh, the markets really don't know. None of us really do know. So what does that mean? So the words that he speaks in the days ahead, and so far I've been impressed, it's, it's been conciliatory, uh, but what kind of people will he surround himself with? That will say a great deal about what his administration will look like, not just from the nature of what it'll look like in the word people, but in the way of policy. Uh, will it be pro-trade from that standpoint, despite what he said about uh, tearing up trade agreements that we have, etc.? So uh, right now, what he seems to be talking about is, and, and this is just stuff that I pick up from the news, so it may or may not be correct, uh, is an early focus in the first 100 days on tax breaks, particularly for corporations, um, and also for reducing regulation. And if that were to happen, then that would generally be, from an economist standpoint, considered good for growth good for economic growth, 
not just here but overseas, and that tends to be good for demand. Now, that would be considered, particularly the tax cut part of it, but also to some extent the regulation lifting. If you were able to do that, it's hard for government to ever roll back regulations. But if you could actually do that, that would be considered accommodative fiscal policy, stimulative fiscal policy. And the Fed has already given indications prior to the election that the next administration would implement accommodative fiscal policy that it might need to look at accelerating the rate of monetary tightening. And uh, so that is a real possibility. The fear has been that the uncertainty that Trump would bring, that the Fed might back off of normalizing rates, maybe not even raising rates in the December meeting, which is highly expected and been highly expected for quite some time now. Um, if, in fact, the look of his, of his cabinet would suggest more accommodative policy and the words that he speaks continue to be conciliatory, we will probably still see that 25 basis point increase in interest rates as it moves to normalization. I think the pressure is still there. But after the first of the year in 2017, where the sense has been maybe one more rate hike, uh, we could be looking at two to three rate hikes. So that's not priced into the market at this point, but that's a real possibility, particularly for those of you who have interest rate exposure to keep in mind. Um, but one of the things that could also impact the markets. Now, trade does continue to be the big question mark. What will be his approach to trade? He is a negotiator and negotiators oftentimes start with a very severe position, an extreme position, some would call it to give them leverage in the negotiation process. So has the statements during the campaign simply been that, or will he actually follow through with that type of action? That's what we don't know yet. But here again, the type of people he puts around him and the words that he speaks in the days and weeks ahead should give us some indication of that. Some of the ags would be more vulnerable toward um, any trade actions than others. But it's really speculation at this point. And of course, everybody in agriculture will certainly be watching to see how he moves in these areas. That said, let's look at the USDA crop report. USDA pegged the corn yield at 175.3 bushels per acre. Exactly what uh, Bevan in our survey found to be the case. That, And here again, I know many of our clients who filled out the survey are, are participating today. And we want to express our appreciation to you. It's you that once again, for basically the second time this fall, have helped us nail the estimate. Now, this is our final estimate. The November estimate is what we carry into January. So will USDA go higher or back off again or whatever? We'll look at that here in a little bit. 52.5 for soybeans. That's where we were last month. We're at 52.8 now. USDA moving our way. Uh, we'll talk about the tendencies from this point forward from USDA, but here again, we were among, we had the highest estimate, and USDA came, you know, ours was near the, the closest of the private estimates. 15.2 billion bushel corn crop, 4.4 almost billion bushel soybean crop. Right there, we're at almost 20 billion bushels on top of a billion plus of wheat still in storage. So, that's a lot of grain, a lot of grain in the system. Looking now 
at what yield changes USDA made in this report from the last one. As I look at the corn map here, uh, some similarities to uh, last month's map where we largely saw increases in yield across the northern part of the belt, Illinois, Indiana, those staying unchanged in this report, but continuing to see increases in the central northern, well, particularly northern plains and northwestern Midwest. So continuing to see those increases there. Across the south, we pulled back a little bit on yield, USDA did. Now, when we look at uh, how that was achieved, Note that ear weights went up a little bit and a little a tick higher also in ear population, but most notably ear weights going a little bit higher. Uh, it was an impressive year. Some of the biggest ear weights that we have seen on record. So very impressive overall. And uh, if the price can't be good, at least you want to have the bushels to sell at that price. I guess that's the good news um, going forward. Looking at soybeans, um, pretty much saw yield increases most everywhere last month, but this month we saw those yield increases primarily focus on the, here again, the central northern plains and the northwestern Midwest, where the harvest was still going on, largely as USDA was conducting its survey. Very impressive yields across the country. I can't pinpoint any particular area because the yields are spectacular every year. This is one of those years I assume that we're going to be talking about for some time unless we top it next year. Very, very impressive. No real widespread problem areas whatsoever. And here again, we did see uh, pod weight drop a little bit more this month, but look at the increase in pod population. That's where we really got the increase to yield. More pods and uh, still heavy. I mean, we're still looking at uh, near record high pod weights and now near record pod counts as well, only the 2010 crop above it. So great genetics for both the corn and the soybean crop overall. When we look at ending stocks, that's the bottom line. USDA uh, projects takes projected production, subtracts anticipated demand, and that leaves you with what's the surplus bushels at the end of the year. 1.1 billion bushels a week. Not much change in the balance sheet there. That's a lot of wheat. When we look at corn, and we do think that maybe we'll see USDA increase the wheat export target for the hard wheats as we get into 2017, but that's going to be something we'll have to watch. They didn't really make any reductions to Canadian wheat production, which we think might still be coming. There might be some other reductions elsewhere that might help improve our demand for hard red quality wheat. Corn, they went up a little over 100 million bushels, a 2.403 billion bushels. That's a lot of corn. Uh, once again, we had the high-end estimate, and we continue to. We basically have the same yield now, the same production numbers now. So what's, where's the difference? Differences must be in the demand side, and that's exactly right. When we look at feed usage, um, basically 150 million bushels below USDA. The other place where we have differences is on, uh, on exports. I'm at 80 million or so below USDA on exports. Can we achieve USDA's target? Yes, we can even exceed it if we see some significant weather problems in Brazil, uh, particularly with the safrina corn crop. Right now, conditions are nearly ideal, and farmers there are looking for significant expansion of acreage. So if they get the rains and if they get the yields, 
I think we'll see USDA's target come down by at least 80 million bushels, if not more, depending on what the final production looks like. If they have a repeat of last year's problems, then I think our exports go up and we see these stocks come down. A little bit more about that a little bit later. Soybean ending stocks. Now, obviously, we've talked about the yield increase for soybeans. USDA did cut its crush target by 20 million bushels. It was at 1.950 billion. I was at 1.945 because I felt like their number was at full capacity for processors. And I wasn't sure we'd be able to hit the 1.945. I'm not sure we'll drop off as much as USDA says right now. It really comes down to next week we'll see the October crush report. I think that'll tell us a great deal about where we're at. Overall, capacity is somewhere around that 165 million bushels for NOPA members. NOPA members are responsible for about 94% of what we crush in this country. So we'd be looking for a number near that. If it's below that, then we're probably justified in pulling that export, excuse me, crush target lower. For now, I'm, I've lowered mine to 1.940 billion bushels. Um, and exports were increased by 25 million. I think they have some more upside overall as we still see shipments to date exceed the seasonal pace needed to hit USDA's target here um, by probably about, about 80 million bushels. So we do have more upside potential, actual sales by about 130 million bushels. As we look at uh, corn yield changes from this point forward at the top in the chart, top chart, soybean yield changes on the bottom part uh, to chart from this point forward. And overall, I think if you look at the historical data and look at similar years, what we'd be looking for is a possibility that we could see corn really go either way, um, but wouldn't be surprised to see it pull back just a little bit. But frankly, I think as I look at it and look at some of the other years that were similar, I think we're probably pretty close, right at that 175.3. So I don't look for much of a change there. We could see an increase in acres, a modest increase in acres in January. Uh, No change in December to the production side is expected. Um, But we, I think we're probably going to be very close to that 175.3 in January on the corn yield. On soybeans, I would say we're at risk of going a little bit higher, ending up very close to that 52.8 bushel yield that we have put out there. Um, that uh, you as uh, our clients have have, uh, indicated. And so I think we're probably pretty close there uh, to where we'll end up uh, with a little bit more of an increase by USDA. Demand continues to be strong. We did see USDA ratchet up demand for China in the 2015-16 marketing year, but did not increase in 2016-17. I think that we will see them do that. I've talked about that before. Uh, Part of it's due to this. Look at USDA's tendency to underestimate exports, soybean exports in their November crop report. I mean, the overwhelming year, number of years, we see that. Of these 21 years, 14 of them, so that's two out of three years, USDA underestimated final export. And when they do, it's oftentimes by big amounts, huge amounts. And of course, a lot of that depends on South American weather. But as a result, ending stocks end up below USDA's, and then, I'm sorry, that says October, I forgot to change that. That's November. The, the bars are correct. 
It's just the title is wrong, saying October rather than November. But USDA has overstated ending stocks projections for soybeans in 17 of the last 21 years in its November crop report. So, and significantly in the last two years. If we look at, therefore, what does this mean? Well, you see my corn ending stocks estimate of 2.624 billion bushels. That's where I have ending stocks because I think they're overstating demand. Now, if I'm wrong, we go over to the right-hand side of the scenario where I use USDA's demand number, but a yield to 173. Assuming USDA drops the yield in January to 173, leaves acreage the same, leaves ending stocks at 2.2 billion bushels, a marketing year average price of 345 versus the currently anticipated marketing year average price around 310. If, in fact, we see the yield go up another seven-tenths of a bushel or so to 176, we could see those stocks climb to 2.8 billion, marketing your average cash price drop below $3. On soybeans, we're looking at um, ending stocks. I'm a little bit better. USDA's at 480. I'm at 400 and, uh, 439 million bushels. Quite adequate, quite ample, not a lot of difference between my balance sheet and USDA right now from that standpoint, from a price implication standpoint. Marketing year average price around 9.15 a bushel. If in fact the yield goes up a little bit more to 53.1, then we could see national average cash price around 485, uh, excuse me, 885 with ending stocks above 500 million bushels. If on the other hand, we see the yield drop back a little bit to 52.2 bushels, we could see marketing your average cash price above $10. I do not see much gains above that level unless we have significant weather problems in South America. We currently do not, but let's take a look at that. This is a look at the analog years. Analog years would be looking back at other years and Commodity Weather Group did this for us. Um, looks back at other years that had a weak La Nina pattern with similar sea surface temperature anomalies in the Pacific and Atlantic. And in those similar years, there tended to be uh, hot, dry weather building in parts of central Brazil in particular uh, during, the, uh, during the middle of the growing season, during the peak of the growing season, during the summertime period. The heat tended to be a little bit stronger late in the year than it did early. And you can see that overall for the summer as a whole for South America, not expecting much heat. I, and I think that's an average of maybe a little bit more early on, a little bit less later on, uh, but mostly a dry weather scenario. And the models continue to be very consistent toward that. Excuse me, the, um, what do I want to say? the analog years continue to be. We'll see how it plays out. Of course, keep in mind that the analog years were calling for the Midwest to turn hot and dry at the end of, August, uh, end of July into August. It didn't happen. We were above normal temperatures, but we received good rains. So this is still a big if, but this is what the analog years suggest at this point. Commodity Weather Group's actual forecast is this more dryness in parts of northern uh, Argentina, southern Brazil, 
uh, during the month of December. That's something we're keeping an eye on with that dryness spreading into central Brazil, which is key production years in, in January. Now with the, with the soybean planting being so early this year so that they can harvest it in January and February, they will have exportable supplies available at the port probably in, in good numbers after the 1st of February. But that also allows them to start planting the safrina corn, corn crop maybe up to a month earlier at times, uh, which could help them get good yields as well. So it's something we're going to have to watch. Toward the end of the period, the rains start returning and it gets a little bit better. So, what are the take-home points? Well, first of all, corn stocks are large. 2.4 billion bushels. There's no other way to paint that. With wheat stocks also at 1.1 billion. So, we can bump exports, but the more prices rise, we still have all this feed wheat domestically and globally trying to find its way into the feed bump. It has not been very successful at this point, but if corn prices sustain a rally too far too long, then we could see wheat really making it into the feed bump and displacing corn demand. So that's a problem for corn. It's a problem for wheat. Soybean stocks are ample, but unless we see a significant South American weather problem, um, if we see that problem, we could see stocks tighten, um, but if we don't have a problem, we really don't see us move the surplus, and that's a real concern. A repeat of last year's weather problems, on the other hand, in South America, would suggest that we could have a robust market reaction, even with these supplies. If we would have, for example, a repeat of last year's growing problems, um, decreasing production by 7 or 8 million metric tons, we'd be very tight on supplies. We'd need to have some rationing. So this is still a reason why I think this market will find some grounding as it watches the weather forecast, particularly the extended forecast. Those forecasts are not yet threatening. That's what they're watching for. They're simply putting in some risk premium. And so it's still a big if about whether we have those problems in South America. Corn stocks likely do get larger if South America does, South America does not have a weather problem. That's the big question. If they do, we simply can't move it. Up in, um, particularly in the central plains and into the Midwest, it's gonna be very difficult to move. Um, so this is a problem, for, um, particularly for the corn market, for soybeans potentially as well. Um, but soybeans have less margin for error than what the corn does overall. So that's kind of a look overall at the fundamentals of green and oil seeds and what's moving the markets. Uh, I'm going to open it up for questions at this point. So go ahead and enter your questions there on the screen. And uh, as your questions come in, I will uh, start to answer them. Um, again, an eventful day. And uh, still waiting for the first questions to come in. Uh, we typically get quite a few of them. So I want to give it ample time for those questions to come in. See, if it, any questions that we don't get to today, we will try to get back with you, either myself or, or uh, one of our contact people within the firm here uh, with the answer to your question. So we will try to follow up. We have a question from Clay. Where do you see the crude oil market going? 
Oh, that's a question. Uh, over my time watching the commodities, I'm still waiting for that crude oil analyst who can correctly call the market. Uh, that's a challenging one. Uh, basically, though, what I see, to throw my two cents worth in, um, what I see is crude oil defining a broad trading range. The closer we get to $40, the more we see end user buying in here and bargain hunting buying. Um, the more we push toward $50, above $50, the more we see production increase. So we're really in that 50, $40 to $50 range, $52, depending on whether you're talking about Brent crude oil or West Texas Intermediate. And I think we'll probably stay in that wide trading range. Excuse me. I am a real skeptic. If you read my materials, you can tell I'm a real skeptic about OPEC coming up with a meaningful agreement to cut production, uh, let alone live by it. And that's why I say meaningful agreement. Jeff asks, how much should the farmer buy percentage be sold for 2017? With the tools that you have available and the carry that is in the market, um, I'm not going to tell you percentage because that's going to depend on what kind of a risk taker you are and how much ability to sustain risk or to take on risk you do have your operation. But I would suggest that with the carry that we have in the futures market and many cases in the cash market as well, that you need to be looking at pricing a significant portion with a re-ownership plan in case we have weather problems develop in South America. Otherwise, what happens if we have a growing season similar to US and we have big yields, what happens that carrying those deferred contracts just keeps ratcheting on down until you've missed out on the opportunity. So take advantage of the carry that's in the market. Marshall, what are your thoughts on basis improvement for the next two or three months? I'm generally looking for basis improvement. We're already starting to see some of it. It's going to vary a lot by region, probably more in the east than what we see in the west. But the bottom line is we're locking it in the bin. Uh, farmers have some cash on hand now after making sales at harvest over across the scales. Uh, it's going to vary by farmer and by region, but overall the farmer is probably going to be able to hang on yet. And so um, if you can lock it up and you can maintain it, uh, I think you've got some, but look at some storage hedge opportunities to lock it in to carry in the deferred contracts. Otherwise, I do think we can see the basis firm up because corn, we have to pull 225, 250 million bushels per week through the system just to keep up with demand, even though supplies are big. Uh, on soybeans, um, it uh, didn't run the numbers, had a number. Anyway, it's a sizable amount. We're talking right now, we're exporting around uh, 195 to 100 million bushels per week. You add on to that crush, which is going to be another 40, 45 million bushels per week. So a lot there as well. Um, and uh, so we are seeing some pushes where farmers are simply hanging on. <coughs> Excuse me. What about the dry pinto beans? What are your thoughts on, on its future outlook? I apologize there. Do not have a handle on the pinto bean market. Uh, my apologies there. Um, that question from Jeff. Allie asks, how do you see this impacting the ethanol market? I see a good ethanol market going forward uh, through 2017. I see good exports. 
we've been seeing um, a tightening of ethanol supplies in Brazil, most notably, as sugarcane has been more profitable to move into the sugar market than into the ethanol market. So we're already seeing a number of cargos lined up, ready to head toward Brazil. And I anticipate we'll continue to see that. That has worked to equal the market somewhat, but I still see a price advantage to exporting ethanol. And I think that's going to be our savior in the end is exporting that ethanol. And so I think it's going to be overall well supported. <clears throat> Kevin asks, with Trump's economic plan to increase spending on defense and infrastructure, etc., plus proposed tax cuts coupled with the extreme weakness in the U.S. bond market, is it time to lock in long-term interest rates? Excellent question. Excellent question, Kevin. Uh, I think there's some real opportunity here. None of us has the answer exactly where that bottom is or whether we're going to break out to the upside on interest rates. But what we do know is based on where the Fed fund futures are trading relative to the dot graph that uh, the Fed puts out every quarter, that the interest rates probably have more upside risk than downside risk. And so as a result, if you're looking to lock for opportunities to lock in interest rates, you probably have more opportunity there than you do risk, although it is not without risk. I need to say that. Uh, so overall, I think you need to be seriously looking at your interest rate exposure going forward. Uh, see if there's any other questions that we have not covered yet. Overall, I think we're in pretty good shape. All right. Well, this is Arlen Sudman. I appreciate being with you once again, and uh, we look forward to being with you for future USDA crop reports. Thank you very much. Take care, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.